Every year at the Passover time, or perhaps I should say nearly every year, it's better not to say every and all and never and words like that they say, but nearly every year at the Passover time, why Satan does try to get in and stir things up and confuse people and disorient people. I could tell you story after story about that happening, and all you older brethren know that. So we do need to pray for one another, and specifically ourselves pray and quietly meditate on the Word of God, on the meaning of the Passover, and ask God in heaven to bless His church, continue to give us the wonderful unity and the wonderful growth that we're beginning to have, and we're very grateful for that. So what will be the ultimate meaning of all this? I want you to turn with me, first of all, to John chapter 1. This is the real beginning of everything, as Mr. Herbert Armstrong said, because it goes back even before Genesis 1. Genesis 1 goes back to the recreation about 6,000 years ago when God put man on the earth. But this goes back to the very beginning. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. It does not say when that beginning was. It might have been billions of years ago. Probably was. The scientists know it's way back when. They don't know when. They keep changing their dates. But it was way, way back when. In the beginning. The Word was with God. The Word is a Greek word here, meaning revelatory principle. Or it can mean, of course, spokesman. The spokesman may be a simple way of putting, but the spokesman was with God, and the spokesman was God. He, this majestic being who is with God from eternity, he was God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So God the Father made every single thing on this earth through the one who became Jesus Christ. God is never jealous of Jesus Christ. They are one. And God did that through Christ. And He's had Christ set to be our Savior, to be our living head, to be our high priest. He's not jealous of that. He's the one that caused that. He's guided Christ to be the one to talk with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Christ is the one who spoke to Abraham. Christ is the one who is the one David prayed through, Oh, my King and my God. That was Christ. You know the Scriptures. I've given you on that before. He was the God of the Old Testament. And He was the one who was God from the beginning with God the Father. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Nothing. He made the sun, the moon, the stars, the gorgeous sunrises, and sunsets that we see, he's the one that made the trees or the flowers and the gentle breezes going through the trees. He made love and laughter. He made us male and female. He created the opportunity for marriage, for sex, for family, for extended family, for wonderful things, beautiful things to see and do all over the earth, music, art, literature. Every good and every perfect gift came because Christ gave that. He's the one that made our hands and our eyes and our ears and the capacity that we have to enjoy the sense of smell, the sense of taste, everything we have. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the dark shines and the light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man who came from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light. John the Baptist didn't claim to be the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man who comes into the world. He was in the world. Jesus of Nazareth, who died for you and died for me. Many of us have been to Israel. I've been to Israel three times. Back in 1961, again in 1972, and again in 1970, 1988, I mean. And I'm very grateful for that opportunity. Many of you have been to Israel, and more of you are going this autumn on the Israel Feast of Tabernacles tour. He was there. We could go by the Sea of Galilee, and remember, we're walking where Jesus walked. We're doing some of the same things Jesus Christ did when He was here among us. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. He made that big lake, the Lake of Genesaret, or the Sea of Galilee, it's sometimes called. The world did not know him. They didn't recognize him. He looked just like every other man. He didn't have some halo around his head. 
He came to his own, the Jewish people, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave power or the authority to become children of God. We can become full children of the great God who set the sun, the moon, the stars up in the sky, were made in his image. And even though many of us go through trials and tests, and I know we've got a lot of trials and tests recently, many of our loved ones have died even during the last year. And we need to pray for one another, pray that God will comfort those who are hurting and grieving at this time. But God does not promise we'll all live to exactly 70. Some die a few years ahead of that, some live a little bit longer. But we're, our physical life is like a vapor, a little wisp of smoke, and the wind comes along and it's gone. And it helps us realize how much we need God. In Him we live and, live and move and have our being. And apart from Him, we're nothing. We can accomplish absolutely nothing. So it helps us get the big picture if we can think of God and think of Christ in that way. He's giving us the chance to become full sons of God, even to those who believe in His name, His authority, everything He taught, everything He lived, everything He stood for, who were born or begotten not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the Word, this divine revelatory being, this spokesman, became flesh. He had been spirit, glorified. He was the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that was the beginning. So Christ is our creator. He made all the beautiful things around us. We could have abundant life for a short time, like a wisp of smoke in this life. But our ultimate goal is to become full sons of God. And we can only do that through fulfilling the meaning of the Passover. To be reconciled, really reconciled to God and to be extremely grateful and thankful that our sins can, can truly be forgiven. All the selfishness and vanity and lust and greed, all the stuff we have in ourselves can be wiped out if we truly take the Passover and if we mean it and if we have really repented. And repent means to change, not just to feel sorry, but to change with God's help and certainly mean it and beseech God's help. So as we come before the Passover, let's think about that. Christ is the one who made all this possible. God worked through him to do it. But certainly we have opportunity for eternal life and to become full sons of God. Back in John chapter 10, if you turn there briefly, John chapter 10 and beginning in verse 27. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. God's true sheep hear and understand the truth, the preaching of God, and they follow. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me is greater. So Christ acknowledged that. And we must worship God the Father above all else. But God the Father is not way up here and Christ way down here because Jesus went on a little bit later as I'll show you and said, I and my Father are one. Verse 30, I and my Father are one. They had a total oneness. We can see married couples that have been together for decades and sometimes as people live together and if they love each other, if they grow together, even their facial expressions will tend to be somewhat the same. And you'll just sense they belong together. They grow together over time. But how much more did God the Father and Christ grow together over eternity, over millions or trillions of years, whatever it was? They think alike. They are alike. And when Christ came, if God the Father had emptied himself of become a human, he would have been virtually the same. He might have had a tiny little different personality. His nose might have been a little bigger or smaller if he'd had a different human mother or, or his height or his whatever. But it wouldn't, the same personality, basically, the same love, the same character would shine forth in almost exactly the same way. 
because God the Father and Christ are the same and have been from what we might call eternity. So Christ and the Father are one, and we can understand how God feels when we understand that aspect of things. Our Redeemer died for our sins, and He shed His own blood. Back in John chapter 5, turn back there with me, and here you'll see more about the oneness of Christ and the Father. John chapter 5, this is always a scripture that's kind of hit me in a special way. He said in verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, and certainly the Father is involved on all of this, He gave Christ that authority, and He can do it apart from Christ anytime He wants to. But He says, Even to the Son, so the Son gives life to whom He will. And other scriptures show us that Christ is the main one who directly represents the Father in doing that resurrecting. So he's the one that's going to resurrect us. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all, get this, all judgment to the Son. It's going to be the very one who is willing to bend over, let them tie him up, and strap him down and take big whips and whack across and let the blood flow and flow and hurt and writhe in agony and that horrible scourging that by his stripes we were healed. And God has healed thousands of our people. And even though some of our loved ones have died, my wife died exactly four months ago today, yet God does heal. And I can't deny that. I've seen too many healings. He does not heal us all in this life. But he has healed thousands of people even in our time and must have been tens of thousands of people over the many years of the Christian church. So we know that. We better know that. Christ suffered in that scourging. Then he went out and they jerked him down on this great big wooden plank and banged nails into his hands and his feet, which have been horrible going through your feet. Nails going in there would hurt even more. There more bone structure there, I suppose. It would have been awful. And they hung him up there to rot in the hot sun. And mercifully, God cut it short after six hours because some unknown man. I used to tell it in my sermons and classes. I'd say, well, some young Roman or some Italian turned and killed Christ. We don't know that. The Roman army was an army of conscripts. It could have been anybody from any race, any ethnic group on earth. Some unknown soldier, perhaps, and I'm making up this part, but why did he stab Christ and not the others? It was God's time, and God did cut it short, and maybe something got in his mind, and he heard Christ moan or groan, and something, he said, oh, shut up, wham! And that blood gushed out and water, and Christ slumped forward and breathed his last. God had died. He was willing to do that. Because of God's complete outflowing love in a way that we cannot fully understand that complete outflowing love for you and me. We are His little children. We are made in His image. Christ and the Father want us. They want us to make it. They want us to be there. They want to share eternity with us if we could simply be willing to surrender ourselves and quit arguing, quit fussing, quit trying to reason around God's Word and be willing to develop the kind of character Christ had to truly love God the Father and truly love Christ. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, plural, and His commandments are not grievous. First John 5, verse 3 they say, oh, we've got to have the love of God. And they think that's something sentimental. Well, it can involve sentiment. Probably should. But God inspired John to write, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. If God's love flows through us, we will love God with all our heart and strength and mind. We will love Jesus the same way because Jesus is God and we will worship Him, adore Him, appreciate forever what He did, and have a strong emotional feeling about it. Not just some academic idea it happened, but He died for me. He died for my sins and my wretchedness. Now think of all the stupid, dumb stuff I did back when I was a carnal teenager back in Joplin, Missouri, a mining town. 
and all the jobs I had growing up working at a Zyder concrete pipe plant and hearing all the guys cussing and taking God's name in vain and telling dirty stories and working in the lo- with the loggers in Oregon and all the stuff they did and the way they talked and so on. I have to think, well, God forgave me. I need to be forgiven. And I need to be forgiven every day that I live now. I'm older and I don't have the same drives that I used to have in certain ways, but I sure have plenty of human nature. And God understands that and God has to forgive me day by day. He has to forgive you day by day by day and clean you up and scrub you out. And he's doing that through Jesus Christ, our living head and our Savior. So Christ has been committed judgment that all, verse 23, should honor the Son, notice, just as. God is not jealous. He inspired this to be in the Bible that all men should love the Son, honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So I'm going to be speaking a little bit more about Christ in this sermon, but I'm not leaving God the Father out. I'm quite positive God will not be jealous for one second (laughs) if we emphasize His Son from time to time, because the whole book of Acts does that. And so much of the Bible does that. Christ wants, God wants Christ to be honored. He wants Christ to be worshipped. He wants Christ to be adored. My King, my God, my Savior, the one who lives his life in me through the Holy Spirit. That should be our thought. And we know it's God the Father behind all of it. But we're to have that deep personal feeling and worship toward Christ our Savior. And as the Passover approaches, I hope we can ask God for that and not just have it be sort of a humdrum academic thing we do year by year, but have that feeling. Notice back in Philippians, if you would, chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, brethren, and let's begin in Philippians 2 and verse 3. Paul writes, let nothing be done through selfish. Oh, we're all selfish. We can't help it. We just naturally think of self first. That's why God tells us, love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't say you'd better love yourself. He knows you're going to do that unless you're abnormal. Self-love is not wrong. If you you hate yourself and commit suicide, that's not good either. But people normally do love themselves. But love your neighbor as yourself. So let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. People think, I'm so smart or I'm so good or whatever. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And it's good for me to realize that I have tremendously capable men helping me in this work, such as Mr. Ames and Dr. Winnale and many, many others. I better go beyond that or I'll leave someone else, so I won't name others, but there are 30 or 60 other leading men. And I'm very grateful for them and all you brethren. And so many are loyal and helpful and wonderful And God has guided them. And many of them have so much more ability than I have. And I know that. And I know that I know that. I'm not just acting that way. I know that that's good for me to realize that. I'm just here because God has had mercy on me and called me years earlier, perhaps. And I've had more experience in making key decisions. And as long as I'm here, I can do that and kind of set the pace. But I can't make all the decisions and I can't do all this stuff. I can't begin to it. Many of these younger men can do many of those things much better than me. And each of you needs to look around you and see that the people around you have better ability than you do in some ways. And the women around you have capacity for love and kindness and mercy and service and so on. The greatest strength on earth is love. The greatest is love. Nothing is greater. And often the kindness and gentleness and spirit of service of a woman can be much greater than man. And we men better appreciate that. We wouldn't even be that, be here without our mothers. And often our wives and others have taken care of us. He let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Think about how can I help these other human beings? Christ came to help these other human beings. Why can't I look out for their interests? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Have that same giving, serving, serving, sacrificial spirit who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, 
but emptying himself. And this made himself of no reputation in the King James is kind of a mistranslation. And many of the commentaries acknowledge that. They all acknowledge the Greek word that is used here is kinesis. I'm almost forgetting my own writing here. Kenosis. But it means emptying. That's just what it means. So anyway, he emptied himself. He emptied out the glory, the power that he'd had as very God. He was still the personality who had been God. But he emptied that out and was willing to give that up. Would you be willing to give up something that awesome? Wow, what he gave up when you think about it to come from being a glorified spirit being at the right hand of the king of the universe and to come down and let men kick, kick you and spit in your face and make fun of you and torture you and beat you and finally scourge you and then take you marching through the Appian Way, as they call it, and, and then out there to... No, that was in Rome. <laughs> anyway, the Via Dolorosa against the way of the cross and kill you and... and Put a spear in your side. Treat you like an animal. He knew what was going to happen. He was willing to do that. He emptied himself. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The reason that expression is there because the cross was one of the most slow, agonizing humiliating forms of death that had ever been invaded by depraved men under the influence of Satan the devil. How much easier it would have been to cut your head on a block and have your head chopped off or to be hung as to be beaten with the strips of flesh hanging down and then you have to parade through the city carrying your own cross for a while, men cursing and laughing at you and then slowly being hung up and nailed to a cross and lying there in agony with your intestines starting to swell up and often they rotted if men were hung there long enough and burst right through the stomach wall in a horrifying type of death even the death of the cross therefore God also has highly exalted this man Jesus of Nazareth and given him the name which is above every name every authority every office in the universe that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. So we want to really have that feeling about that ourselves, brethren. That is what Christ went through. That is His mind and God's mind through Him. Total outflowing concern. And the Passover pictures that. Notice back in Matthew 27 now, and we won't be reading all the scriptures about Christ's death. Many of those have already been given in various sermons and I don't do all of that in the same way every year. But turn back to Matthew 27, if you would. And I'm going to begin reading here in verse 22. Matthew 27, verse 22. Pilate said to them, as they were wondering who they ought to release on that special day, Who do you want me to release? Jesus called the Christ. And they all said, Let him be crucified. And then Pilate said, why? He was a smart man. He knew one of the other scriptures said that they were jealous. They were envious. He knew that for envy they delivered him. The Jewish leaders were so envious of him they couldn't stand it. He had the power they didn't have. He had the authority they didn't have. They brought this about. Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, well, he could have called in a Roman legion and started killing people. But the emperor back in Rome didn't want riots. He didn't want to stir up the populace. It might have been a full-scale rebellion because the Jews were always on the verge of rebellion. He needed to have a bunch of his troops killed and wait money and equipment lost. So if Pilate could calm things down, that was part of his job. So he went along politically and let it happen. He didn't cause it, but he let it happen. And so when Pilate saw what was going on, then he saw that a tumult was rising he took water and washed his hands well that didn't get him off he still let it happen he should have stopped it but he washed his hand as though that was getting him off the hook saying I am innocent of the blood of this just person which tells you something though he knew it was all a bunch of baloney this young Jew had not done anything to merit that 
You see to it. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And boy, that's a horrible thing when you think about the last 2,000 years. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. He went through that normal Roman scourging where they had a Roman soldier trained to use this cat and nine tails with little cleats of metal in it. Whoop! And then they jerk and the flesh would come right off and the blood would come running down. And that man knew how to use that whip. Some men died of that scourging before they could ever crucify them. Christ went through that. And then in verse, over in verse 35, then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, spoken by the prophet. So then they crucified him. And as he was hanging on the cross, skipping ahead to verse 45, I'd like to read it all, but we don't have time. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. They're using Roman time. The sixth hour was high noon. Twelve o'clock noon till three o'clock in the afternoon. That would normally have been one of the hottest parts of the day, the brightest parts of the day. But during that very part of the day, it got dark. A darkness was over all the land. And about the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, the normal time of the sacrifice of the lambs as the Jews did it, not necessarily that they always did it the right time, but they started sacrificing about three in the afternoon. God caused his son at that point to have this happen in that sense that he was about to die about three in the afternoon he cried out Eli Eli lama sabachthani my God my God why have you forsaken me why did that happen to Jesus because he took your sins your sins on him and my sins on him and at that moment for a short time he felt a total emptiness, perhaps in a way he had never felt before. He knew he was cut off from God. God did not help him for a while there in the normal way, a normal sense of comfort, and he sensed that. Why have you forsaken me? And God did let these things happen to him. And some said he's calling for Elijah, and they took a sponge, and he... Uh, said he, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And verse 30, Jesus, when he cried out again with a loud voice, but brethren, right between verse 49 and verse 50, I've got an asterisk, and you can put it at the bottom of your Bible if you want to, check it up. But I put an asterisk, and I put down here that many of the old manuscripts have, have this right there. And another took a spear and pierced his side and there came out water and blood. And that was not John 19.34. This was before that last time. This was earlier, right before Christ died. Just before that, this happened. A, a, a Roman soldier took a spear and jammed it into his side. That's why he cried out. If you had a spear jammed in your side, you might cry out too. And when he cried out again with a loud voice... He died. The breath went out. He yielded up his spirit. And behold, right at that moment, who was this that died? The one who said, let there be light. There was light. The one that had created the sun, the moon, the stars, everything that made all of us. The creator had just died. And so the creation convulsed. And a local earthquake shook the earth at that point in time. And tore into the veil of the temple, which is a very heavy thing to tear into. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split. Rocks were split in a local earthquake. Right then, the creation convulsed because the creator of the heavens and the earth had just died. And our Savior had just died. So it's good to sort of think that through the meaning of all this as we approach the Passover. So we like to need to really understand the meaning. And as we take the bread and the wine two weeks from tomorrow night, brethren, remember the scourging for our healing. Remember his shed blood to pay for our sins and try to be thankful 
Father in heaven, thank you, thank you, thank you that I can be forgiven for my sins and my rebellion and my selfishness and my wretchedness. We should all think of those things as we approach the Passover and perhaps even during the Passover. This is what the Passover is all about. Be thankful that we can be forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 28 now, soon after this, why Christ was resurrected and appeared to the eleven. Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Even then, boy, human nature, it's amazing. They'd seen so many things, but some still doubted. Then Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And again, that's good for us to realize. Who is totally in charge of everything, even in the outer universe? And certainly here on earth, over all of the Vladimir Putins and all the Xi Jinpings and all the former Adolf Hitlers and Mussolinis and all the dictators and all the bad guys. Christ is, ultimately. He's been given total authority as he wishes to use it, and, and yet he lets things happen. We know that to teach us lessons and to yet let human beings know their way does not work. Our government is not working. Things are coming apart. Our own nation is seething, many people, thousands of them. We're going to have all kinds of upsets in this country, even apart from God's intervention. God allows that to teach us lessons. Go, therefore, and take, make disciples of all the nations, Jesus said. We're trying to do that. We were glad to have Mr. Christian Orega preach to us. He comes to us from Columbia, and he's been living up near Baltimore recently. And he, of course, is coming to help get out the message to the whole Spanish world. 400 million people in the Spanish-speaking world. And his wife is extremely competent and had a government administrator's job. So they're both here to help us and do the work and to help Mr. Mario Hernandez, who needs help just in the administration part. We're going to develop a real Spanish-French department over time. We're to go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, not some different gospel, but all the things Christ commanded and lo, I, Christ, am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Christ didn't fade from the scene. He was going to keep right on. He is with us always, even to the end of the age. And that's part of his responsibility. And part of his responsibility now in doing that is, of course, revealed in the book of Hebrews. So turn back to Hebrews, if you would, chapter 2 in your New Testament. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, chapter 2, brethren, in verse 17, it talks about Christ and how in all things he had to be made like his brethren, so he had to become fully human like we are, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. He can have mercy. He really went through it throughout his whole 33 and a half years on this earth. He saw human nature. He was treated very badly at times and terribly badly near the end of his life. He could understand human nature. He could be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for in that he himself suffered being tempted, and he was tempted, it didn't say he gave in to the temptation, but he had the pull to get back at him, to get even. He had sexual drive, like every normal young man. He had to fight that, fight that, fight that, as he was a young man in his teens and early twenties. You better believe he cried out to God, help me. And he had other drives. He had to fight as a human being. So in that he suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He's able to give us the help that we need. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. He is the apostle and high priest. He is now our high priest. And over in chapter 4, verse 14, 
uh, chapter uh, Hebrews 4, now verse 14, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points, brethren, not just in some points, but in all points, every way you've ever been tempted to get mad at someone, to get even, to drink too much, to misuse sex, to use violence, to lie, to cheat, to water things down to make yourself look better. He was tempted in all points like as we are. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. We know He's there. He really does understand. Jesus, our high priest, right at God's right hand, really does understand. Let us come boldly that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So Christ right now is our living, active high priest helping us and helping pray to God and explain to the Father if He needs any help to understand even more fully our needs and our weaknesses. So Christ is our living head and He's our living high priest, but He is also our living head and our coming King, and we have to understand that too. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, if you turn back there, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians chapter 1, I'll often break into this on verse 19 because Paul had great, long, involved sentences and sometimes you have to read half a page to finish one sentence. So we break into it in verse 19, in verse 19 about the exceeding greatness of Christ's power and in verse 20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So God seated Christ at his right hand, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. We think of these men on earth like Putin and other big dictators as being so important. They're just little worms compared to Christ. He's sitting at the throne of the universe, far above them. And every name, every authority, every office that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he, God, put all things under Christ's feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We know that in 1 Corinthians 12, it describes in detail how if the eye says to the ear, I don't need you, and all those scriptures, every part of our body is part of Christ's body. Christ uses our physical bodies to do His work. He works through us. He does not have physical hands and feet now. He doesn't have physical mouth now. He uses our mouth. We are His body. And Christ has got to be able to know that that body will respond. When I want to raise my arm, and say, the arm, get up, I'd better know it's going to work. Otherwise, I'll be mad at it. <laughs> but as we get older, some things don't work like they used to, you know. It makes you want to hit the, hit the desk or something. But our hands and our feet work because God made it that way. And God wants us to respond as part of the body of Christ. He is the head over all things to the church. And when you understand that, and the whole New Testament makes it clear He's head over every part of the church. He's head over church administration. He's head over media. He's head over the financial part of the church. He's head over the local visiting programs. He's head over outreach. He's head over our, our uh, youth department. He's head over every single aspect of the church. Does that mean they're all perfect? No. God doesn't make everyone do exactly what He says, but overall He guides it. And in 64 and a half years in the church, I've seen how that works out. Christ does guide it. In the end, He will cause it to turn out for good. Mr. Armstrong said many times, Brethren, Herbert Armstrong has made hundreds of mistakes. But he said he has never allowed me to make a terrible mistake that would wreck the church or wreck the work. And that's true. We'll make, I've told our leaders here, let's not... Let's try to learn from Mr. Armstrong's mistakes and let's not make the mistakes he made because we'll make many of our own. We don't need to use this. <laughs> let's learn from his. We'll make our own mistakes. We know that. 
But God does not allow us to make terrible mistakes. He will guide and lead His church over all. And I can tell you before God in Christ, I have seen Him do it. I'd better not get off telling you all the examples. I've seen how God intervened when it almost looked too late, and He intervened and turned things around again and again and again. Christ is the living head of His church. He's alive. He is not dead. And so people do need to understand that aspect of Christ. Back in Colossians chapter 1, if you turn to Colossians now, and chapter 1 of the book of Colossians, notice here in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12, beginning, it talks about us giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. He's delivered us from Satan and his power and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Christ's kingdom. We're part of Christ's kingdom as we're begotten sons of God, begotten members of the kingdom of God, in whom we have redemption through His blood. And we must deeply appreciate that shed blood. The Bible is not ashamed to mention the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of sins. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. He's the one that did the creating, and they're created, all of us are, and these things in this world for Christ and for the purpose He and the Father are working out. And he, verse 17, is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he, Christ, is the head, not was the head. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn Son of God, born from the dead by the resurrection, that in all things he might have preeminence. And he certainly does have preeminence. So once again, he is the living head of the church. So brethren, I know there are times some of our brethren and some of you brethren may have in the past, hoping no one's doing that now, but we have human nature and people begin to gripe and complain and murmur like the murmurings of the children of Israel when God took away their water, took away this or that to wake them up. They began to complain and murmur. And we have murmurs, and we have people that complain, the people that think that God's gone way off, and Mr. Ames and I are just running the church, and we make a mistake, and that's terrible. And Mr. League and Mr. Rod McNair, running the local visiting program, they make mistakes. They think that some of their mistakes are not mistakes. The people just don't like what they do because they don't like to be corrected. But people have a chance to gripe and to moan. And that attitude is not good. That attitude is not something God wants in His kingdom. He does not want murmurers. He does not want that attitude. We want to understand that, yes, there will be human nature. There will be mistakes. But overall, God will guide it. He will work it out. If you see something specifically wrong, please come to Mr. Ames or to me or one of our leaders or come to Mr. League if it's his area or some other area and ask humbly and sincerely, is this a mistake? And maybe there was a mistake. If so, we'll try to straighten it out. We will. We have. Many hundreds of times we've changed on things and listened to people's concerns. But don't assume that you're right and the ministers are always wrong. Maybe we're ministers for a certain reason. Maybe God has put us through Ambassador College, trained under Mr. Armstrong for hundreds of hours, many of us, had hundreds or thousands of hours experience in the ministry, and Christ is guiding overall. That's the thing you should assume and try to assume, well, this man is not making a mistake. I may misunderstand, or if it's a mistake, he can explain it to me, and maybe he'll change in time. I know he will if it's a real mistake. So have the attitude that Christ is in charge and learn, brethren, in this life to respect Jesus Christ as your Creator, the one that gives you life and breath and look to Him and worship Him and honor Him as your Creator, as your Savior who died for you and gave His life for you. And then 
as your high priest who's there at God's right hand praying for you, helping you, strengthening you, the Holy Spirit encouraging you, and as your living head and coming king. And know he is in that job. That's part of his responsibility. And you're putting God down and you're showing disrespect for the one who created you and died for you if you always assume that he can't do his job, that he can't run his church. We know that some of our brethren and other Church of God groups don't really understand God's government. God has not given them that understanding, but most of us here do understand that. We don't learn God's government by politicking and voting and so on. We learn of it by trusting God to carry out His government and to guide those in authority He's placed. We understand that. We see that's why this work is growing so fast. We see that's why guided guided Mr. Herbert Armstrong for 52 years to a greater job of getting out the message than any other human being in the last several hundred years and said that the number one thing that he put back on of the recovered truths was the government of God. Truth number one, the government of God. So don't forget that. That's part of Christ. That's part of the way Christ is. That's the way, part of what Christ taught. That is part of Christ's job. So part of his job was to create us and the whole universe to come and die for us, to be our living high priest at God's right hand and pray for us and help us and live his life in us through the Holy Spirit. And part of his job is to govern us directly and also through his church. He is the living head, the active head of the church. And we're respecting God and we're respecting Christ if we come to respect that part of what Christ did. Because all these things are part of our Savior and His responsibility. And we really do need to understand that He's not dead. Turn to Acts chapter 1, brethren, if you would. Now let's go at this point to Acts, the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts 1 verse 1. Here Luke, following through his writing of the book of Luke, says, The former account, referring to Luke, I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So back in his physical ministry for 33 and a half years, especially three and a half years, he began to do and to teach. The implication is the book of Acts is telling us what Christ continued to do. Christ continued to do these things through His church. He can continue to do these things through His apostles. If you read the book of Acts carefully, you'll understand that. After Christ's resurrection, they needed to appoint someone to replace Judas who fell away. And in verse 24, Acts 1:24, they prayed and said, Oh, you, O oh Lord, and frankly, this could be dual. I won't explain this. I have it in my notes later to explain it, but I'll explain it now. When they pray in the New Testament to the Lord, it's sometimes obviously Christ by the context. Sometimes it's God the Father. Sometimes you're not sure. That word Lord refers to both of them. Why? All through the Old Testament even, it talks about the Ancient of Days. And sometimes the Ancient of Days means God the Father. Sometimes it has to mean Jesus Christ. Why? I and the Father are one, Jesus said. And He really meant it. They share these offices. They share these titles many times. So they were praying to Christ. He was the immediate head of the church. And I think they were praying to Him just as much to God the Father on this occasion. You, O Lord, who know the hearts of men, show which of these two you have chosen to take part of this ministry and apostleship. And they cast lots, not to gamble, but as an appeal to God. They were not voting. They were asking God to show them what to do. Once the Holy Spirit came, they never cast lots again. Then God gave them special wisdom and guidance through His Spirit. So this is the last time that was done. But turning now to chapter 2, Acts 2, and let's begin reading here in verse 32. Acts 2 and verse 32. Paul, uh, Peter is talking. He says, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, who, the one who was exalted of God, He poured out this which you see and hear. Who poured out the Holy Spirit? Who caused the flames of fire to come down? 
Christ did. Christ was the one that did that, not just God the Father. Christ intervened, you see. He was alive. He continued to lead His church, and He did a lot of these miracles directly. And frankly, when you understand the Bible, He did nearly all of them. Maybe God intervened apart from Him at times, but nearly all of it was done because of Christ. Christ was the living head of the church, and He guided these things. Notice in chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, and beginning in verse 57 here, the same principle applies. Acts seven fifty-seven. I'm sorry, I better long chapter keep turning forward here. It shows how when Stephen was dying, when Stephen had challenged them, I should say, about how they were turning away from God, then, verse 57, these Jews were so upset at him because he said, you've been the murderers and betrayers of Christ and so on. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. They threw big rocks at his head. Not a very fun way to die. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was part of it. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God. And who was God? Christ is God. He was calling on God, though, and saying he prayed directly to Jesus. And Jesus is God. It's not wrong to pray to Jesus on occasion. Our main prayer should be to God the Father. And Christ taught us that. But Chief Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's last words were praying to Christ. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So Christ was the living head of the church, and he was right there, and those people felt that, they knew that, and they knew that they knew that, and their whole life was based upon that. Chapter 9, verse 3, as Paul was being struck down on the way to persecute the saints at Damascus, Acts chapter 9, verse 3, as he journeyed near Damascus, Suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who was this? This was the living head of the church who was still alive and still doing things. Christ was there. He was guiding all these things in the New Testament as the active head of the church. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord, Christ is called the Lord throughout the New Testament, the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So this was the Lord Jesus Christ, the living head of the church, and he intervenes personally at times. So Christ is in charge of his church. He guided them not to go into Asia Minor for a while, and then he gave Paul this vision, come on over here. And then Paul did go over there. Christ said, go here, go there, don't go there. He was leading and guiding his church. Christ guided us, I think, to come back here from California. The weather is better in California. I know that. But we got a building here, and now we have three buildings. We have the wonderful headquarters building. We have the media building, and we have at least part of the building, our condominium we own over there, which is extremely helpful to the work. Three different places we own. And later on, we'll perhaps have one or two more before it's all over, or many more. We don't know what Christ has in mind. But he will guide us. We prayed, we fasted, and just as we were praying and fasting, and I did fast a number of times and prayed with all my heart, Father, please show us what to do. And my wife and I went to several different places and finally decided, and then we had Mr. Ames and Mr. Bardot come back here and see this area and some places, and they agreed, and we picked out the building we're in now. And it worked out well. But just at the time we had to have extra money to move back here, guess what happened? An old bachelor back in Iowa named Raymond Jorgensen, who would shared a farm, his parents were dead, and he and his, they were both bachelor brothers, his brother died a year or so early. The whole thing was his. His brother was not in the church, but he was. And he donated every single vestige of his estate to the church. We got his house, his barns, his big tractors and equipment, everything. About $960,000 worth. Up to that time, the biggest offering we'd ever had. Why? 
Christ, the living head of the church, realized we needed to move here. We needed money to do that. And he gave us that great, huge offering. So this winter, we were not able to grow and go on stations that were letting us get on and many things we needed to do. And we're kind of waiting and waiting. And all of a sudden, we got some wonderful big offerings this winter as well. And a couple more will come later, we hope. We're praying God will bring them soon. I hope you'll join me too, that God, because now they're beginning to run out a little bit. But God helped us get on all these new stations. God knows our need. He's the living head of the church. Christ is. He's in charge of his church. And he will work things out. So, brethren, when men and women in the church begin to gossip and to criticize and talk about things bad, wrong, and what's wrong around here, well, you have to go back and read Mr. Armstrong's autobiography and go back there to the early days. I was not in the earliest days in 47, 48, but I did come in, in August, September of 1949. And I heard the griping and the moaning myself. When this thing folds up, many of the unconverted faculty use that. And one of them talked about the Heavenly Father and his son with his red chariot. And that was meaning Mr. Herbert Armstrong. He was supposed to be the Heavenly Father. And Dick Armstrong with his son with his red chariot. Did Dick Armstrong have a great big Cadillac convertible or covered with gold? No. He had a small Plymouth convertible. And he worked about 60 hours a week in the radio station doing all these. Uh, he had to record and, and these uh, uh, discs as they were back then. Worked long hours doing that to get the radio discs out to the station. I used to go out with Dick in the middle of the night. That's where we became friends. And I'd go out and we'd have a cup of coffee going up Santa Barbara Avenue and zigzagging. That was long before we had the Los Angeles Freeway. We didn't have the good freeways then we have now. And we got out there and then came back and maybe had some coffee or beer on the way home and lost some sleep. But we got the disc out there and I kept Dick company. But he had no riches at all. He just did have a, his own car because he had a lot of driving to do in his work. And the college only had one college vehicle, Bill Homburger's old pickup truck. So Dick had his own red convertible. Wasn't that something? How terrible that could be. People griped and moaned about everything they could gripe and moan about. And often people do that. They find something, something to pick at if their attitude is wrong. Try to avoid those people. And pray that God will wake them up. That's not what God wants. If you believe Christ is the head of the church, then in a sense you are griping at what Christ is doing without realizing it. I know you don't mean to do that, most of you that gripe and moan. But that is what it amounts to many times. And the fruits of that have not been good down through the years. I can start naming names. I know. I happen to be there. And I was one of the main ones that did know because I was over the headquarters visiting program and over the whole region, later the whole U.S. ministry, but still in charge. And I spotted things often before others did, things that were going on. So don't gossip and criticize Christ, because that's what you're doing. I know when I was sent to Hawaii to get me away from a bad guy, and that's the reason, and to help a situation so Mr. Armstrong could not have that pressure on him from this person who hated me, why I had to pray fervently every day and fast once or twice every week for God to help me not and get in a bad attitude. I'd worked and worked and I only fainted twice in my entire life. Both those times were during that seven-month period during the receivership when I was trying to work and pray and protect Mr. Armstrong and keep the work together under his leadership. But we were being accused and accused and accused and accused and accused by Satan the devil. And finally it all came out, and what happened to the bad guy is what he wanted to happen to me. He was kicked clear out, never came back to any job in the church. But I had to cry out to God, please, Father, help me not get in a bad attitude. And that was one of the main themes of my prayers, because I had to fight. I thought I'd worked and slaved to try to hold this thing together, and my reward is being sent into exile. Now, my son Jim has a strange attitude. He says he wished he could have been sent into exile to Hawaii. <laughs> he likes Hawaii. <laughs> so I'm part of kidding. Don't want to distract his point. But, you know, 
many people like Hawaii. I don't hate Hawaii. It's okay. But if I were having to be sent away somewhere, I'd rather be sent to the mountains because I like to hike and I don't like the hot sun on the beach. I burned to a crisp. But anyway, I had to go around that island every Sunday with little Rebecca, who was not even grown yet, and she'd get off her school. We'd go around and look back at the closest point and say, they're back there and I'm out here, and Father, you get me back here. And he did. He will always do that. He will always do that. And when I came back, I didn't do any politicking. I didn't. I did not. In fact, I couldn't. They'd watching me. I knew that. I just prayed to God. He took care of it. He will always take care of things. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He may try you for a while. Joseph was such a good man. He wouldn't even succumb to this woman trying to seduce him. He wasn't trying to seduce her. She was trying to seduce him. And what happened? He was sent into prison. And then he comes out. And then what happens? He is made the governor of the greatest empire in the entire world at that time, the empire of Egypt. Wow. But he had to humble himself and wait for 13 years. For 13 years. Then God turned it all around. God was testing him. So God may test you sometimes. Learn the lesson, whatever it is. We all need to learn lessons, but to know that Christ is the head of the church and He will take care of things. Notice in 1 Corinthians 6, brethren, if you turn back to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6 at this point. The Apostle Paul writes, you've heard me explain this many times, Daring if you having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Why don't you trust Christ to run His church and to work out problems between brethren? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged, the whole world will be judged by you pretty soon. Are you unworthy to judge even the smallest matters? Do you not know that we, we saints, we Christians, will judge angels? We're even going to judge the angelic hosts. How much more things to pertain to this life? See, we're being placed now to make decisions, to make judgments. Christ is giving us, to a limited extent, the opportunity to practice government. And we've got to be fair. The department heads in our headquarters building should try to be fair. All of you ministers should try to be fair. I'd better try to be fair. Will any of us ever make a mistake? Of course we will. We're human, but overall, God will guide it. He might even use a mistake to test someone to see if they're going to get mad the minute we make a mistake. Because they don't trust Christ. They don't trust their Savior, their Creator, their God. They don't fully realize Christ is in charge and He will work it out. And you have to have that kind of faith. You need to grow in that kind of faith. So God wants us to know that and to know that we know it. Remember back in Revelation 2.26... The overcomers shall be kings and priests. That's why we're being trained. And Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, I have made you kings and priests to rule on this earth. He repeats that twice. Twice we're training now, in training, all of us, to be kings and priests, to be rulers. So we're training to exercise government. And we've got to learn to respect government ourselves, to be part of the team and to be loyal, to be responsive, to say, Christ, I know you're there. So even though Mr. Ames will make a mistake, we'll trust it'll not be serious. But overall, he's going to be try to be very fair, which he certainly does. Dr. O'Neill will certainly try to be very fair, which he certainly is. And each one of our leaders will try to be fair. And if they make a mistake, you can straighten it out and you will make sure it's not some terrible mistake. And that's the way it is. We trust in Christ. It's part of our faith and trust in the one who died for us. Tie it all in. That person, that great being, Jesus Christ, the Logos, the spokesman who existed with God from eternity, he is all those things. He is our creator. He is our savior. He is our merciful high priest to talk to God the Father and say, well, John, God, John down here is human. I went through that and let's help him. And they do help us through the Holy Spirit. They understand us. They know our needs. And also, He's our living head and our coming King. So we look to Him for all those functions and have faith in Him 
as our Creator, our Savior, our living, active High Priest, and our living Head, the active Head of His church today, this work of God, our Head is Christ, and our coming King who will rule over the whole earth. And so we want to think about these things as the Passover approaches. And as the Passover approaches, I'd like to turn to just one special section here in the Bible that just hit me as I was reading it the other day. Turn with me to John chapter 12, brethren. Turn to John chapter 12. Then six days before the Passover, verse 1, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who had been dead, had been raised. There they made a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So Jesus had Lazarus, who had been raised from the dead, sitting, and Mary and Martha were helping. And Martha is the main one who is serving all the time. But Mary, apparently, was even more beloved. Not that she was lazy, but she had a deep, profound worship toward God and toward Christ. Then Mary, verse 3, read this carefully, brethren. Think about it once in a while. What is your attitude toward Christ? Would you be willing to do this? Do you realize how much Christ has had to forgive you and how much God has had to forgive you? Mary must have had long, beautiful hair. That's one common denominator of a beautiful woman. And older women can't have as long hair. We know that. But nearly all the early Miss Americas and Miss Universes were young women, age 18 to 25 or something. They had long, flowing, beautiful hair. And her hair was probably long and beautiful. And Mary took a pound of very costly, very expensive oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus. She poured that very expensive oil, maybe costing hundreds of dollars in today's money, on Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, her beautiful hair, which had probably been freshly washed. You wouldn't normally do that for just some man, and she didn't. She did that for her God, her Savior. She knew who Jesus was. She got right down and took her hair and wiped his feet with her hair. An attitude of total worship and adoration. And I hope that I will learn to do that. I hope that all of you men and all you women will learn to do that. To have that profound sense of worship and adoration. You're the one that can save me. You're the one that forgive me. You've died for me. You're my, you're my example. You're my hero. You're my king, my God, my Savior, Jesus Christ. And have that attitude if you needed to or to show something like that, you would just do it to wipe his feet with your hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. And so what did she get? She got criticized even for that, as you know. But Christ said, that's fine. And in one of the earlier accounts, he said, this will always be recorded as a witness to this woman in the Gospels. And he put it right in the Bible. The awesome example of the attitude of complete worship and adoration we should feel as we see the broken bread, as we see the red wine picturing Christ's red blood for your sins and my sins. So let's approach the Passover with that spirit, brethren, and worship God with all our heart, all our strength, and all our mind, and walk with God with all of our hearts now and forever.